It was the bright winter morning of December 16, 1935. Around 10.30 a.m., a maid named Mae Whitehead drove up to a Spanish Revival-style detached garage on the grounds of a sprawling hillside estate known as Castillo del Mar. Less than 400 feet below, directly on the Pacific Coast Highway down a winding set of stairs, was the successful roadside restaurant owned by May's boss, the 29-year-old movie starlet, Thelma Todd. As May opened the garage door, she gasped. There was Thelma, slumped in the front seat of her Lincoln Phaeton. Wrapped in a mink coat, she was wearing a shimmering blue evening gown, a limp camellia still pinned to her lapel. Her golden curls spilled over the front seat, and the car's key was in the ignition. May rushed over to her boss, hoping she was just asleep. But Thelma was cold, and her skin had a strange red hue. Dried blood speckled her nose and her mouth. Within hours, the garage was a madhouse, teeming with police, reporters, and even an ex-husband. Thelma's mother, Alice, was hysterical, and upon her arrival at the garage, she screamed loud enough for every tabloid hack to hear. She's been murdered. I'm Hadley Mears, and this is Underbelly L.A. Thelma Todd was born in Lawrence, Massachusetts in 1906. An intelligent, personable girl, she trained to be a schoolteacher. But after being crowned Miss Massachusetts in 1925, Thelma was soon on the fast track to Hollywood. Beautiful and vivacious, she found a home at the Halruch Studios, where she became a popular personality in slapstick comedies. Her greatest fame came from her buddy comedies with the legendary comedian Zazu Pitts. According to Vanity Fair, the duo complemented each other perfectly. Todd was brash and confident, and Pitts a more dithery presence. They have gumption, they're unflappable, film historian Molly Haskell told Vanity Fair in 2018. They're looking out for each other. You can just feel the value of the twosome. They are modern women. Hopefully they will rise to the top, but in the meantime, they're just going to wing it and figure things out. Thelma also appeared in popular comedies with Buster Keaton, the Marx Brothers, and Joey Brown. Nicknamed the Ice Cream Blonde and Hot Toddy, Thelma was beloved by her co-workers for her easy, unaffected charm. She was also known as a hard partier on the L.A. social circuit and was often overheard ordering one more round of her signature drink, Three Fingers of Rye. From the beginning, Thelma seemed to see behind the facade of Hollywood. She despised the casting couch system and longed to get out of the slapstick movie mill. In 1931, Thelma fell in love with her much older, very married director, Roland West, during the filming of the drama Corsair, which Todd hoped would change her image. So desperate was she to shake her screwball persona, 
Thelma gave in to Roland's request to change her name to the more Tony-sounding Alison Lloyd. On the set of Corsair, Roland insisted the cast and crew call his new lover Alison or Miss Lloyd at all times. Roland, a somewhat shady, faux-intellectual character, believed in reinventing oneself. After all, his real name was Roland Van Ziemer. His wife was the equally shadowy actress Jewel Carmen, who under her real name, Florence Lavinia Quick, had been involved in a scandalous white slavery trial as a young teen. Jewel and Roland lived together in the Spanish Revival mansion they had built on the cliffs above the Pacific Ocean. They called the house Castillo del Mar. Roland was reluctant to leave Jewel for whatever reason, and shortly after Corsair wrapped, so did he and Thelma's relationship. Corsair was not the breakthrough hit Thelma had hoped for. She quickly went back to her real name and her real home, cranking out slapstick comedies that audiences loved and critics despised. Thelma's taste in shady men also held strong. In 1932, she married a wannabe gangster and self-styled businessman named Pat DiCicco. Pat, a brash playboy with a vicious streak, is probably best known today for being the brutal first husband of heiress and socialite and jean designer and Anderson Cooper's mom, Gloria Vanderbilt. Gloria has long claimed Pat beat her consistently during their very brief marriage. Hearsay points to Thelma and Pat also having a volatile, violent marriage, and they were divorced in 1934. Their attraction undeniable, Thelma and Roland soon rekindled their romance, even though he was still legally married to Jewel. They had what many described as a father-daughter relationship. Roland looked out for Thelma, and Thelma brought spunk and sizzle into the older man's life. In 1934, Roland had a thoroughly modern idea. He wanted out of the directing business, and Thelma wanted more security. Thelma was a great cook. When she wasn't partying, she often cooked comfort foods for her friends, including her specialty, land chops cooked over a charcoal broiler. Why not open a restaurant that capitalized on Thelma's fame and talents and Roland's business sense? The couple decided to open a restaurant on the Pacific Coast Highway in a building Roland owned right below the Castillo del Mar, where Jewel was still residing. Thelma and Roland threw themselves into the opening of the cafe and even moved into adjoining apartments above the restaurant, adjoining for propriety's sake. Thelma explained her inspiration for the cafe to the gossip columnist Luella Parsons. I've heard so much about the choice food of those days preceding Prohibition, when eating was still a fine art. Always I read with great interest about the bon vivants of the gay 90s, when people dined with pomp and ceremony, before they became addicted to grabbing a sandwich, a slab of pie, and calling it a meal. Thelma was also very aware of the pitfalls of fame, with an attitude that was remarkably clear-headed for a woman often written off as an out-of-control party girl. She told one reporter, I realized long ago that it is only a case of a few years for an actress, for she gradually, sometimes almost imperceptibly, loses popularity, and younger ones start to take her place. Look at some of the one-time famous stars of just a few years ago. Whoever hears of them now? Most of them are unhappy and rather bewildered. It's pretty hard to have your lifelong career at an end. So I decided long ago that I wasn't going to be one of them. The years are not going to bother me as they do so many of my colleagues. Wrinkles won't worry me, neither will increasing weight. Because as long as I can use my head, it won't matter how I look. 
Delmatad Sidewalk Cafe opened at 17575 Pacific Coast Highway in the summer of 1934. The cafe, which included a full swank bar, was an immediate hit with the movie elite, who didn't mind the cafe's high prices. There was a private area upstairs called Joya's Room, where customers dined on frog legs and grouse, and where some casual gambling may have been permitted. A typical advertisement for the cafe read, Thelma Todd Sidewalk Cafe, serving a Long Island Shore dinner, fish with Allison sauce unequaled, French-Italian dinner, pancake Suzette, unsurpassed. The reason, from the Savoy London and the Creon Paris, comes our chef. Thelma, always a hard worker, was the consummate front woman. She was often at the cafe, sitting behind the counter making change. There were also pictures of her posing in the kitchen or standing in front of the cafe's marquee, and those were distributed to newspapers and fan magazines. By October 1935, the cafe was doing so well that the L.A. Times reported, Business is so good that Thelma Todd is going to build a new addition to her sidewalk cafe. She plans to spend approximately $10,000 on improvements. But Thelma could not escape the pitfalls of fame. Throughout early 1935, she was terrorized by menacing letters and phone calls at the cafe. Her stalker, who called himself the Ace of Hearts, threatened her and attempted to get extortion money from her. The FBI was called in, and in August the stalker was arrested in New York. Thelma breathed a sigh of relief and started shooting her latest movie, The Bohemian Girl, with the comedic duo Laurel and Hardy. On the chilly Saturday night of December 14, 1935, Thelma put on a shimmering blue evening gown and wrapped herself in her prized mink coat, ready for a night out on the Sunset Strip. When Thelma left her apartment above the cafe, Roland, who worried about Thelma's drinking, warned her to be home by 2 a.m. Thelma laughed and countered she would be home by 2.05 a.m. Thelma was on her way to a party at the hippest nightclub in Los Angeles, the Café Trocadero, which had recently opened on Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood. A dinner party was being thrown in her honor by the director and actor Stanley Lupino. The party included his 17-year-old daughter, the future movie star and director Ida Lupino. At the Trocadero, Thelma was her usual charming, effervescent self. She was the life of the party, so distinctly sparkling, Stanley Lupino told reporters. She told me she cared little anymore for the gay world of society. Other interests, including her sidewalk cafe, required much of her time. The merriment was briefly interrupted by Thelma's ex-husband, Pat DiCicco, who had weaseled an invitation out of Ida Lupino the night before. According to Ida, Pat was unsurprisingly a jerk to Thelma, and she quickly told him off. Perhaps this unpleasant blast from the past accounts for what Ida would claim was Thelma's increasingly dark mood that night. At one point, Ida said, the two women were sitting at the bar alone. According to William Donati, author of the highly informative biography, The Life and Death of Thelma Todd, Ida claimed the conversation went like this. Gee, Ida remarked, I'd like to quit all this and get out of Hollywood. It's too much of a strain. I've been trying to do that all my life, Thelma said morbidly. There's only one way you can pull out. Come on, let's have a drink. But, as Donati reminds us, we should take everything Ida said about Thelma with a big old grain of salt. Ida was dramatic and intense, 
and prone to exaggeration her whole life, and she was only 17 when the circus surrounding Thelma's death occurred. Others claimed Thelma was in high spirits until the very end of the evening. In an attempt to drum up business for her café, she wagered a party of studio executives a meal. I'll bet you a dinner that you won't come to my place tomorrow, she laughed, as night turned into early morning. Around 3.15, an unsteady Thelma headed out to her chauffeured car. As the car drove away, she leaned out the window and cried, Goodbye to you all. Ida, of course, elaborated. She got into her car, placed her hand on her forehead, and made a sweeping gesture as though saying farewell to all of Hollywood. According to Donati, Ernie Peters, a chauffeur who had driven Thelma numerous times in the past, claimed she acted strangely on the long ride back to the cafe. On the other evening, she liked to run back the window between us, and we'd chat on our way up the coast. But she didn't say anything much this time. I wouldn't call her glum, but I'd say she definitely had something on her mind. Ernie let Thelma out at the cafe, the ocean softly roaring, the PCH empty. He offered to walk her up the steps to her apartment door. Never mind, not tonight, she said. He was the last person to see her alive. Sunday passed uneventfully. That evening, the party of studio execs came into the cafe to make good on their bet with Thelma. They asked where she was, and Roland told them that he assumed she was with her mother, who she often stayed with after a night out in Hollywood. Little did they know, Thelma was just a few hundred feet away, her body lying in her car in the detached garage above her beloved roadside cafe. On Monday, after May Whitehead found Thelma, the garage became more of a photo shoot than a crime scene. Police and members of the coroner's office bustled in and out, while photographers snapped pictures of Thelma's body, of her face smushed in the Lincoln's front seat. Pat DiCicco appeared, rushing, as always, towards drama. It's awful, just awful, he cried before breaking down. Thelma's mother, Alice, who eventually calmed down after her outburst claiming murder, Blame Thelma's death on a heart condition. It's that heart of hers, she said. Thelma loved life so well. She had everything to live for. L.A. newspapers ran with May's first hysterical cry. Yes, the L.A. Times reported. The autopsy surgeons had found that Thelma had died of carbon monoxide poisoning from the car's running engine. But that did not lessen the vigor of an investigation being made by police into the riddle of circumstances surrounding the finding of the film player's body. Hearst examiner, never to be outdone, blared, If her death was accidental, it was as strange an accident as was ever conceived by the brain of Poe. Across the country, newspapers and tabloids made the controversial decision to run the gruesome pictures of Thelma's body. The small paper, the Venice Evening Vanguard, issued a self-serving disclaimer, explaining why they just had to run the pictures. 
For the first time, this newspaper today publishes the picture of a corpse. This newspaper, in order to keep up with its news coverage, is practically forced by Metropolitan Papers' policies to publish these pictures of a dead body, in spite of the reluctance of the management to do so. Was it suicide? No one who knew Thelma, except Ida, seemed to think so. The Los Angeles Times reported, Possibility of suicide was rejected by the investigators in the face of the fact that Miss Todd had more than 100 Christmas presents wrapped and addressed and ready for mailing in her apartment at the time of her tragic death, and she had just begun work on a new motion picture. Was she murdered? And if so, who were the suspects? Number one was Roland West, of course, her business partner and older lover. After all, Thelma had come home late and drunk, just like he warned her not to. Roland claimed to have heard his dog barking around 3 a.m. on Sunday morning, but suspiciously, he hadn't even gotten out of bed. Then there was Pat DiCicco, the ex Ida said Thelma had fought with the night of her death. Soon after Thelma was discovered, DiCicco fled to the East Coast to visit his mother, but not before issuing a pissed-off statement. Hollywood has enough headaches without trying to make a scandal of an accidental death. And then, most enticing of all, there was the mob. Thelma's attorney, A. Roland Button, fanned the flames by telling the Los Angeles Times. A group of gamblers wanted to open a gambling place in her cafe. She told me at the time she was opposed to gambling and would have nothing to do with it. But whether the gamblers ever made a deal, I do not know. The case was further muddied by Thelma's friend, Martha Ford who claimed she had spoken with Thelma on the phone Sunday afternoon. Jewel Carmen, Roland's estranged wife, initially told police she had not seen Thelma in weeks, but then she changed her story, claiming she saw Thelma on Sunday evening on Hollywood Boulevard with a dark-complexioned man, probably a foreigner. Curiously, only four days after her death, Roland announced the reopening of the cafe in the Los Angeles Times. We wish to take this opportunity of thanking Mrs. Todd's many friends and admirers for their kind thoughts during our recent bereavement. We also wish to advise that we are going to endeavor to carry on as Miss Todd would have liked, doing business as Thelma Todd's Inn. Not surprisingly, ghoulish sightseers descended on the cafe, and trophy hunters started picking the cafe clean of anything that said Thelma. Amidst the madness, Thelma was laid to rest in true movie star fashion. At Pierce Brothers Mortuary, thousands of fans lined the road, waiting for a chance to file by Thelma's open casket, where she lay in blue satin pajamas. Later that day, a private service was held at the Wee Kirk of Heather, a recreation of a Scottish chapel in Forest Lawn in Glendale. The service was packed with her famous friends, including Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, Hal Roach, Zazu Pitts, Sid Grauman, the Lapinos, and Joe Shank. Reverend Harold L. Prape eulogized Thelma lovingly. She was one of the most genuine persons alive. To know her was to love her. She was the same woman at all times. After the service, Thelma was cremated, her ashes kept by her mother in a bronze urn. But Los Angeles was not going to let Thelma rest in peace. That just isn't our way. On the day of Thelma's funeral, the district attorney convened a public inquest in the Hall of Justice in downtown Los Angeles 
to look into Thelma's mysterious death. The inquest, which dragged on for weeks, was quite simply a shit show. Spurred on by an intention-seeking grand jury foreman named George Rochester, a parade of witnesses, including Roland West, Jewel Carmen, and Zazu Pitts, took the stand. Each asked leading questions about Thelma's character. The grand jury visited the garage and the sidewalk cafe. There they found Roland West waiting to greet them, in a natty blue blazer, holding a cocktail. Not surprisingly, Ida Lupino gave the most dramatic testimony of all, talking of Thelma's morbid streak. She also claimed that Thelma often said, I would be the happiest girl in the world if some catastrophe would befall me. Life isn't worth its candle. While we're here, we should laugh and be gay and have fun. She also claimed that Thelma had told her she was in love with a man in San Francisco and was going to meet him the next day. Ida's father clarified, Yes, Thelma had talked to a mystery suitor, but it was always in jest. Thelma's mother, Alice, was called to the stand three times. Fed up and furious that her daughter's death had been turned into a public spectacle, Alice unloaded on the press outside the courtroom. This grand jury investigation, and the manner in which it is being conducted, is the work of cheap politicians looking for jobs at the expense of my daughter's name. She is dead and is not able to defend herself, but I am here and I will defend her good name. I am certainly convinced that Thelma's death was an accident. If I am satisfied, I don't see why anyone else is interested. Two days later, an emboldened Roland West directly confronted George Rochester in the grand jury. I will not answer any questions that might reflect on the character of Miss Todd. Anyone in my position would do the same thing. According to Donati, when he was asked to pose for a picture, he agreed, dramatically remarking, A photograph, like a glimpse in a mirror, is just an illusion. Shortly after, the grand jury closed its investigation. So what really happened to Thelma Todd? Well, the most likely scenario is this. An intoxicated Thelma realized she was locked out of the cafe and did not want to wake Roland up. After all, she was very late. She probably either walked up the road or the set of winding stairs that led to the garage to sleep it off for a few hours until it was daylight. It was cold that December morning, and she probably turned the car on to get warm. Then she was quickly overcome by the fumes and died of carbon monoxide poisoning. This theory is borne out by the fact that the coroner confirmed that she was intoxicated, she did die of carbon monoxide poisoning, and she didn't have any bruises or cuts that were evidence of a beating or a struggle, despite media reports to the contrary. Eventually, Los Angeles moved on to its latest scandal. Roland soon found that now that the frenzy had died down, Thelma's name conjured up sadness and unease, not business. He changed the cafe's name to Chez Roland, Nightclub acts were added, and Wes found another young hostess named Queenie Shannon to be the face of the business for a number of years. Roland eventually remarried Lola, one of the famous Lane sisters. After his death, Lola gave the cafe building to Paulus Productions, a Catholic production company. It was sold in 2017 for $6 million. Don't be shocked, but Thelma's ghost is said to haunt the building. Castillo del Mar, home to Roland and Carmen, is still there too, on the cliffs overlooking the Pacific Ocean. Again, don't be shocked, but it's said that you can smell gas coming out of the garage where Thelma died. Thelma's death remained the stuff of legend. Salacious TV movies, one starring Lonnie Anderson, 
and books, like the infamous Hollywood Babylon, painted Thelma in a distorted, sleazy light. They pinned her supposed murder on all sorts of people, even the gangster Lucky Luciano, whom she never met. Years later, both Hal Roach and the actor Chester Morris would claim Roland had killed Thelma. Morris even claimed Roland had confessed on his deathbed. At the age of 95, Hal Roach stated that three detectives from the LAPD had visited him shortly after Thelma's death and told him Roland West had signed a confession. This was most likely another tall tale in a town full of liars, mythmakers, and exaggerators who know that sometimes it's easier to make up a sensational story than live in the sad, senseless truth. I'm Hadley Mears, and you can follow me online at Hadley Mears, H-A-D-L-E-Y-M-E-A-R-E-S. You can follow Underbelly LA on Twitter at Underbelly LA Pod. We're also on Facebook. Just search for Underbelly LA. Listen to all future episodes of this podcast by going to underbellyla.com. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and anywhere else you'd normally find a podcast. Every episode of this show is researched, written, and read by me, Hadley Mears. This episode was based on an article I wrote that originally appeared on KCET. Check it out. The show is produced by Drew Mackey and edited by Mika Grimm. The music for this podcast was composed by Donovan Dorrance. The logo was designed by Sarah Wickham. Underbelly LA is a Table Cakes podcast. Table Cakes is a Los Angeles-based, woman-owned podcast company. And if you want to learn about other shows on this network, go to tablecakes.com. If you want to support Underbelly LA, check out our digital tip jar at patreon.com slash underbellyla. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Underbelly LA. Join us next week as we explore a mysterious murder-suicide at Greystone Manor. Table Cakes Production.